This morning we begin a new series on the book of Malachi, and so I'll be reading from Malachi chapter 1, 1 through 5. I encourage you to follow along on your apps or in your own Bibles, but if you need a Bible there in your seats, that's page 801. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, Uh, so if you're familiar with the New Testament, you can merely flip backwards until you hit Malachi. Uh, If you're not unfamiliar with where it is in the Bible, but what's going on, let me just briefly tell you, Malachi is writing to God's people, speaking to God's people after they've come back from exile. They've been restored to their land. They are under the rule of Persia, and they are expecting things to get better. The temple has been rebuilt, but it's not very glorious. God had promised an eternal king, but right now they're still under the thumb of Persia. They're under their taxes, and things are pretty thin. But there's good news. Often we speak of messengers saying don't shoot the messenger because they often bear bad news but malachi whose name means my messenger opens his oracle with good news news of god's love for his people so let's attend now to the opening of the book of malachi malachi 1 1 through 5 the oracle of the word of the lord to israel by malachi i have loved you says the lord But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray as we begin this new series together that God would continue to speak his truth to us. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your timeless word. Though we are separated by millennia from the time of Malachi, yet your unchanging eternal word is here for us this morning by your grace. Would we receive that gift? Would we receive your truth? Would we accept your instruction and would we be fed and sustained by it? Would all that I have to say this morning be for your glory and for the help of your people? This I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I want to start this morning with poetry. With American poetry. And if you're thinking, oh no. This is a more familiar form of poetry to us. Country music. Bill Anderson has a song about love. And this is what he says about love. He says, If you hold on to love too tight, it'll crumble and crack. If you hold on to love too loosely, it'll fly away and won't come back. Love has a mind of its own. It'll dance like a kite on a string. For something that can be so strong, love is a fragile thing. 
Love, sure, is a fragile thing. I think this songwriter, this modern poet, gets some things very right in these few words. Our experience of love can feel very fragile indeed. He evokes the caution that we might undertake in pursuing a new friendship, a new community, a new romantic relationship because of our past experiences and the experiences of those around us, we are fearful of it falling apart, of letting it slip away, of it blowing up, of being hurt again. He understands our caution, our temerity about the subject of love. But I think he gets something wrong. He says, love is a fragile thing. My contention this morning, and I think Scripture's contention, is that love, true love, is not that which is fragile, but we are. We are prone to doubt. We are prone to anger. We're prone to fear, to cold-heartedness, and to flights of fancy carried on by passion. But it's not love which is fragile, but us. And the God who made us, who witnessed His beloved creation walk into sin and self-harm, knows that despite His redeeming covenant love, we often look askance upon His love. We question We doubt. We challenge His love, especially when we are hurting, when we're afraid. God's people are hurting as Malachi brings this word to God's people. They are expecting the return to glory, and yet the temple that was built a generation or two before is pretty empty and lackluster. It's not the resplendent place of the glorious God. They're under the taxes of the Persians. The Persians who had one hand had given them the money to finance the rebuilding of the temple have now, as they're facing difficulties with famine and wars, are asking them to pay more taxes. And God's people, which used to be an important political player in the stage of international politics with King Solomon, now they are no longer even a nation, but they are just governed as a province under Persia. And in their hurt, they are responding to God's covenant love with doubt, with angst, with skepticism, which results in priestly misconduct and lackluster worship, injustice, and self-justifying sin. So as God gives his messenger an oracle, an oracle, this is a weighty matter. This is something that must be conveyed to the people. As God gives his word, this oracle, through Malachi to the people, what he wants them to hear is warning, is correction, is a call to turn back to him he starts that with a declaration of his love. As soon as this oracle is identified for us, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, the opening words are, I have loved you. 
And a fair and appropriate translation would be, I have always loved you. This is not, I have loved you in the past and something has changed. I have loved you and have been loving you. He assures a fragile people of his love, knowing their doubt. And he gives them a picture of that love in a surprising place. Esau and Esau's descendants, the Edomites, they they don't make sense. But when they are held up, they provide a foil to Israel. These are not God's chosen people. You are my chosen people. So what does it mean to be loved as my people? For Israel, for the church, For all those who come into the church through faith in Christ, what is God's covenant love for His people like? As we pay attention to this passage, that love is on display for us. We see that God's love is gracious. That God's love is faithful. That God's love is merciful. That it is powerful. And it is glorious. First, God's love is gracious. Grace is gift. It is unmerited favor. It is undeserved blessing. That's what the biblical picture, when it uses grace, means. And as God speaks to His loved people, as they've come back from exile, He roots His description of their love in something that they have no merit of. Their descent from Jacob. As God declares to them, I have always loved you. I have loved you. And they respond with doubt. How have you loved us? Instead of pointing to the immediate present situation, the prophet points to the past. And points to Jacob. And so as God is saying, I have loved you, he wants them to be thinking that you are only now the recipients of my love because I graciously chose Jacob. The only thing that you have done to merit my love is to be born. To be born in the lineage of the people of promise. And then that nature of that gracious love is further conveyed in the comparison of Jacob and Esau. Verse 2, But you say, how have you loved us? The response, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? And as they're taken back in history, they remember that born to Isaac were two boys, Twins. And yet while they were in their mother's womb and they were in conflict and tension with each other, God spoke and said that the younger will be over the older, that the older will serve the younger. Though there was nothing that Jacob had done to earn God's favor, Though it would have been expected in that day and age for the older brother, even if older by a few seconds or minutes, that the older would receive the blessing, that the older would receive prominence, and yet God graciously chooses Jacob and his descendants. The language here of love and hate is strong, but it's less about affection and warm fuzzies and abhorrence. This is the language of favor and choice versus rejection. We read of how Rachel is loved and Leah is hated. It's not that her husband despised her. He loved Rachel. She was the apple of his eye, his chosen bride. And despite there being nothing in Jacob 
that earned that favor, God had bestowed his choice to bless Jacob and have him be the one that would carry forth the covenant promises. And so as God's people have been brought back from exile, generations, millennia later, the prophet reminds them that I have loved you because I have chosen a people. Despite the fact that they don't merit it, I have fixed my gracious love on you. Oftentimes when we're struggling, we might ask, what have I done to deserve this? And it's a normal reaction. But as God's people hear these words, they are encouraged to ask, instead, how am I responding to the unmerited, gracious love of God? What have I done to deserve this love? And the answer is nothing. Any more than Jacob had done anything to deserve God's love, do you, the descendants of Jacob, deserve that love? Yet God has graciously loved you. God is faithful to that gracious choice. Not only is God gracious in His love, choosing to bestow His favor and blessing on those who have done nothing to deserve it, but in making that choice, He is faithful to it. We know how when we are caught up in the throes of excitement, how young lovers make vows of undying love. How friends who meet at camp vow to write each other letters or to text every day. There are pinky swears and blood oaths exchanged in deep devotion that fade away, that ebb, that grow cold. While humanity rushes to make bold promises of love, we are not so good at keeping those promises. But God does not speak empty words, let alone make promises out of mere passion. Israel expected a glorious new temple. They desired restored power and prestige. And when things don't look the way that they think they should look in the timing and manner in which they expect, they begin to doubt and fear. Maybe God doesn't love us anymore. And yet Edom is a reminder that God's covenant love is a faithful love. He keeps His promises. Now this example, yes, is, is a negative example. But if God says, I have always loved you, and you are now the objects of love, this is an opportunity for God's faithfulness, the truthfulness of his words to be manifest. In Isaiah 34, 13, the prophet Isaiah had said of Edom, who at that time, while God's people were slumping towards exile, while Edom was still thriving, said this, thorns will grow over its strongholds. Nettles and thistles in its fortress. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. What God had said would happen to Edom is now happening in the eyes of Israel. As Edom, which had so long thumbed its nose at Israel, as we read this morning, as they had withdrawn from the power of Judah and seemed to do fine as Israel and then later Judah were taken into captivity. Now, those words are coming true in the sight of God's people. God kept His promise. Why did He promise this? Because though Israel was commanded to respect Edom, when God's people were traveling to the promised land, 
Edom did not show favor and kindness to God's people under the leadership of Moses, but attacked them. And then they conspired with Babylon against them, that leading them into their defeat and captivity. And so God said, Edom will become a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. That's what Joel 3.19 says. And so as Edom is displaced, as they are becoming desolate in that time, it is a contrast with the position of Israel. Because though God had said something similar of Jerusalem, that they would become a haunt of jackals, though Jerusalem would become desolate, God also promised that they would be restored, that they would be returned. While we're used to love fading and promises breaking and the best of intentions falling short, God does not. His love does not. God has kept his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to a faithless and faltering and at times outright rebellious people. God had kept his promise to generations. And even as Israel is struggling with their circumstances, it is in light of what God promised to them. And so as Edom is experiencing what God said would happen to them, God's people who have a different set of promises can know that they can trust in the love of God who has promised to restore them. When they were wayward, God had been steadfast. He had promised Adam and Eve that a son of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, though it strike his heel. We sit here this morning because God keeps his promises. His love is faithful. Praise God, because ours isn't. Which is why it's so good news that God's love is also merciful. He's gracious to choose us, even though there's nothing within us that merits or deserves that choice. He's faithful to the promise to bless us and walk in relationship with us. But then when we're wayward, when we're sinful and rebellious, how does that love treat us? Does it cast us off? No, instead, God's love is merciful. Israel is a chosen people, the recipients of promise. But we know when we read the history, and the reason the prophets are so important is because they often speak to that history. They've rebelled. They've been idolatrous. And though it seems through the rest of Malachi's oracle that they will need to reflect on their sinful behavior God's going to talk about what the priests are doing. They're going to talk about their worship. They're going to talk about their marriage and their finances and all those things. The starting place that Malachi is called of God to address is God's loving mercy. The language of desolation and place of jackals evoked not only what God had said would happen to Edom, but it is a contrast of what God said would happen to Israel. Jeremiah 9 had said, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a layer of jackals. But unlike Edom, God has promised restoration to Israel. He has offered them mercy and forgiveness. Undeserved release from their unpaid debt of love and worship and obedience. Of Edom, it will be said, as according to verse 4, they will build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. That is not an unjust 
judgment. It is what they deserve because of their sin. And it is only by the mercy of God's love that Israel doesn't stand under that same judgment. But God, because He is gracious and faithful in His love, is merciful. I quoted from Jeremiah 9 a moment ago, but then we read later in Jeremiah 33. Thus says the Lord, if I had not established my covenant with day and night in the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant. Then I will choose not one of his offspring to rule over Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. Maybe you didn't catch it. God is saying, if you can prove to me that I will not keep my covenant to make it day and make it night, then you can prove it that I will not keep my promise to restore my people and have mercy on them. Because God has graciously chosen to bestow His covenant love on Israel, He has faithfully loved them. And in order for them to walk in that love, He has mercy upon them, forgiving and restoring them. Outside of God's covenant love, there is no hope for mercy. But God has invited us all into that merciful covenant love through the means of accomplishing those merciful ends, His very Son, Christ. Through whom we enter into the people of God, the family of God, the kingdom of God, through faith in Him, whose sacrifice purified a people fit to live forever with God. We see a picture of God's merciful love to Israel because they are not the objects of wrath that Edom is. And at the same time, we also see that God's love is powerful. So far, we've looked at the internal dynamics of love between Israel and God, between the Lord and His people. But one of the things we know is no relationship lives in isolation. Our marriages, our families, our friendships... Our churches, they operate in larger contexts. It can often feel like these are just boats, small boats, trying to survive the thrashing waves of an ocean full of dangers. You know what it is to be a parent who desperately loves your children and yet cannot control what their friends say and do around them. Who desperately loves a friend who is making choices that are destroying them from within. We know what it is to love passionately, deeply, faithfully, even be willing to forgive people and yet not have the power to fix for them what is broken. God's love is not so limited. For God's love is a love of power. And as Israel is no longer a power as it once was under Solomon, as they aren't even functioning as a nation, but they're governed by a foreign empire, they might be asking, what good is it to have a loving God if we are at the mercy of our enemies, if we are taxed by outsiders, if we aren't even the ones that set our own course for self-rule? But God's love is inextricably tied with His power. And no power can stand against it. Part of what this passage conveys to his people is that God's power has defeated Edom. Edom, their brethren. Edom, that, that next-door neighbor who they were supposed to treat with respect, 
who had turned on them as they made their way to the promised land, who had turned on them in allying with their enemies in the Babylonians, while they seemed to succeed and grow in power and influence, Israel was struggling through defeat and then exile. But now in these moments, even as God's people are struggling, as they look at the Edomites, they see that God has the power to bring about what he says will happen. And should Edom seek to rebuild, they are setting their will against God. And in that battle of wills, they will not win. They will say, they may build, but I will tear down. Their intention, their power, their influence will be limited according to what God wills. How has God loved us? That is the question the Israelites are asking that God anticipates through Malachi. He has demonstrated that the power of our enemies cannot stand against our loving God. That the gates of hell shall not stand against the advance of the kingdom because of the love of God set upon us. His determination to bring salvation for his people. And on the cross, Jesus defeated sin, death, and the evil one, our utmost enemies. Israel was looking to their lack of power and the apparent power of the nations set against them. God's messenger instead calls them to look at the power of the Lord who loves them. The God who took what Joseph's brothers intended for evil and turned it into the salvation of his family and his nation. The power of God who transformed the shame of the cross to the hope of life. Will our nation's enemies win? Will those who hate Christianity be victorious? Will the sexual agenda of our day have the upper hand? Will AI and technology completely transform the way that we live life? Will these things win? No. Maybe they will have ascendancy for a moment. Maybe we will suffer around them and in the midst of them. They will look more powerful, but they will not win. They cannot win because the king is God. God has asked us, can anything separate us from his love? And we know that answer is no. What our enemies seek to build, God will destroy what our failures and mistakes tear down, God has determined to rebuild. And what God has built, no power can destroy. The love of God for his people is a powerful thing. And it is a glorious thing. Verse 5, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Israel is called not only to receive the love of God, but to bear witness to it, to proclaim it, to give voice to it. That the power of God is not limited to Israel, but rather that God will be glorified among all the nations for His power is exhibited beyond the borders of Israel as His way is had with Edom, as His way is had with Persia, as His way will be had with whatever empire comes in the future. While those that God has graciously chosen and redeemed and kept for himself are the objects of his love, we are not the final ends of that love. 
That is, God truly loves us, but the love of us is not His ultimate purpose. God loves us as a display of His glory that is not limited to one church, to one denomination, to one nation. But God loves His people. He loves Israel. He loves His church. That in loving us, He would be glorified. If God is committed to His glory, then we who get to experience that love are blessed with a share in that glory as we testify to it, as God lifts us up in using us to display that glory. The purpose of God's love is not merely to make us safe or happy or satisfied, but to display in us and through us to all the world His glory and to bestow upon us a glorious future with Him. Scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We know it is an honor to be a messenger for the King. And we are called the future sanctified and beautified bride of Christ. That is our glorious future because of the love of Christ. Malachi starts with a word of love. God has always loved His people with a gracious, faithful, merciful, powerful, glorious love, what will they do with that love? Will they hold on to that love? Or will they reject it for temporary gain, looking elsewhere for something else to satisfy, for political power, for another form of worship, for another set of alliances or gods? Malachi's use of Esau here and the Edomites isn't just a foil for present-day Israel but it evokes the history of Esau. One of the earliest incidents in the life of Esau is he comes home starving after a hunt and his brother Jacob offers him a pot of stew in exchange for his birthright. And I have sympathy for Esau. Let's just not heap scorn upon him. Know what it's like, and perhaps most of us don't because of how well cared for and how comfortable we are in our lives, but we know what it is to be starving or to be really hungry. And Esau feels as if he's at the edge of death, and so he's willing to give anything. He gives up his birthright. He gives what is his by the declaration of God, what he has a right to in the future for the immediate satisfaction of his flesh. Israel is tempted to give up the eternal eternal love of God for the immediate satisfaction of the circumstances that they desire. God's declaration of love is a warning, is an invitation away from that. For what God is offering in His love is not just immediate benefit, but what He is ultimately offering is Himself. That this passage, that this letter, that this prophecy starts with the love of God in order to confront the sinfulness and waywardness of God because what He's preparing them for is His return. That He's sending the messenger to prepare the way for the Lord is coming to the temple. He's coming to be with His people. The reason that the love of God is such good news is because this love is the display of the very character of God His graciousness, His faithfulness, His mercy, His power, His glory that He offers us in Himself. And then brings to light and brings to culmination for us in His Son who came 
to the undeserving and to the outcast sinners, to the rejects, to offer healing. Who is faithful to fulfill everything that Israel was supposed to be when they had not. Who went to the cross willingly so that His sacrifice could be the means for our experience of God's mercy. Who in going into death robbed death of its power for us and invites us into the glorious future, sharing with us an eternal inheritance in the saints such that the church is called to be the fullness of Him who fills all in all in Christ. We not only have the love of Christ and the love of God, but we have God Himself. What Malachi is speaking to his people. Some of you may hear Ed Sheeran's perfect love sung or played at a wedding as a couple dances. Hear it on the radio and say, I wish I had a love like that. Or perhaps you rewatch Band of Brothers and see the willingness of comrades to put their life in danger to rescue one soldier. Or maybe just something as simple and pure as the love of Lassie for that poor wayward boy always falling into wells. We see those stories or we hear those songs and we see those pictures of love and say, I want a love like that. The thing is, those love stories are so compelling But even if we get them, or a piece of them, they are just a bare reflection, a foggy depiction of the greater love story. Because we might have a sense of love and affection and a deep romantic relationship. We might enjoy a group of men who would die for the sake of our safety or the companionship of an animal that will never leave us nor forsake us. But all of those stories are incomplete because in none of those stories is there perfect love, is there perfect faithfulness, is there mercy, and is there power and glory. But their beauty is all derived from the greater love of God for His people who sent His Son so that we could know that love. And so I invite you, even if you've struggled to see that love in Malachi this morning, if there is a picture of that love in those stories, in those songs that is attractive to you, then to come and receive it in God Himself through Christ. Whether through the first time putting faith in Him, or if you've known that love, to come back and contemplate. Brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, we are not Edom. We are Israel, God's people, forever loved, conquered for the King, by the King, for His glory, to share in that glory. What a wondrous love we've received. Let's pray. Lord, we come rejoicing in Your love. Rejoicing that You quiet us with Your love as a father who sings over his child when we cry out and when we doubt and when we fear, when we rebel. Would we come to this place where your messenger starts with your wayward people, the declaration of how you have always loved us? Will we respond with love and faith and obedience? In Christ's name, amen.